One minute exactly. One minute exactly of unexplained silence. 60 seconds. What went on? Did you think something was wrong? <clears throat> Did you wonder if I had suddenly lost my place in time and space? Did you think that maybe you should do something? Speak up? Say something? Stand up? Walk out? Did your mind start racing a bit as the silence went on? Did you feel anxiety that the squeezing feeling of concern rising, worry, dread creeping in? It was only a minute. What if it had been longer? Wouldn't be surprising for all of those things to creep in. It is, after all, all around us, this displeasing feeling of concern and worry and dread. This morning's headlines in the New York Times reflected, for the most part, it's in all of the news, not just the Times, all of the media services. Here's a bit of a selection from the headlines. Fear of civil war mounts in Syria as crisis deepens. Boehner faces rest of GOP and White House attacks. Theology feeds Christian unease with Romney. Israelis facing a rift of the, over the role of women. Divers, divers search. Cause of crash, unclear. Gunmen take police building in Iraq. Palestinians talk with Israel and Hamas, perhaps a good thing. And the list goes on, added to the barrage of media that is filled with concerns are our own preoccupations. <clears throat> our employment, our finances, our relationships, family and members of the family, health concerns, loss, grieving, and more. Maybe even God. And so we sit here in church Sunday morning remembering Dr. King, reading about Samuel and Eli, Jesus and the disciples, all on one of the coldest mornings of the year. Also wondering about people spending the night outside in the cold and how we might be paying our heat bills if in fact we are fortunate enough to have heat and a place to bill for heat. It may be true that on given days we trudge the road to happy destiny with a heavy load of anxiety, even dread. We become worn out enough at times or just overwhelmed by knowing all we do and all we know that needs to be changed. We become so overwhelmed that sometimes we shut down just a bit. We turn off the TV if we have one or watch one. We set aside the newspapers, leave bills unopened for a while, shut off the computer, and we seek respite, quiet from it all. But when even the silence can cause anxiety, where do we go but back to the noise? And when in the silence or the noise, we call out to God, and all we get is silence or more noise, well, it's easy to begin to wonder where, if God is, is God. 
And where does all of that leave us? And if we know that God is, if we know it, if we know it, how do we feel it? How do we get God from our head and all these things going on that rack our brains with problems and thinking and thinking and problems? How do we get God back into the heart? Into the heart in ways that we can feel God. Almost in a defiance to a world that requires thinking, analysis, progress, success, rewards, all chalked up in some way in our heads that score our life like some living report card that no one will ever read, but that we, nonetheless, can find demanding and at times obsessive. Paul Tillich, a philosopher and theologian that lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to the mid-century, was an eminent author and professor. He came to the United States in 1933 after being dismissed from the universities he taught in, in Germany because of his opposition to the Germans and the Nazi movement. In one of his best-known books called The Courage to Be, he addresses a world filled with doubt and the loss of meaning and purpose for humankind and the loss of the sense of God alike. In one part he states that the courage to be, that is, who we are, faithful, willing. The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when the God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt. The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God has disappeared in the anxiety and doubt. Now, there are biblical stories, time and again, about being lifted up from doubt and fear, being saved after giving up all hope by a God who refused to stop loving us, even when we had given up on God, loving one another, or even given up on ourselves. We have been known to get pretty down now and then. It happens. And then seemingly out of nowhere, one rises up, placing all that they have and all that they were at risk into the hands of God, and they make a decision to go at it. Whether it was the insurmountable odds of opposing armies or the cries of Hannah praying to God for a son, a son whom she promised to God if only she could bear him. And she did. Hannah bore the son Emmanuel, excuse me, the son Samuel, who opens this morning's readings. A faithful servant he became to the high priest, Eli. He was given into Eli's care around the age of three, completing the narrative of Hannah's prayers to Eli that began the same amount of years before. And out of her anxiety, out of her bitterness, we are told, out of her doubt and sadness, she gives it all up. She entreats God by pouring out her soul in spite of the anxiety or fear she feels, in spite of the torment she has received from her husband Elkanah's other wife who bore children easily. In spite of it all, even in the midst of the greatest of doubt, she came to God with a promise. Give me a child and I will give the child back to you. 
Was all she wanted to know, was all she wanted to know that God heard her, would use her? Did she want to know this and feel this so much that she was willing to give over her child? The song of Hannah, like the Magnificat of Mary, says it all. My heart exults in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God. How many times do we just want to know that God has heard us in our suffering, in our pain, in our joy, in our anxiety, our doubt? How many times do we just want to know that God has heard us? And this morning, it is God who comes to Samuel, her son, Hannah's son, with a vision and a call that sets into motion the grand narrative that will involve Samuel and Eli, the making of kings, Saul, David, Jonathan, and the house into which Jesus would eventually be born and which carries us forward today. But in here there's a shift. It's a shift that is ours too. It's the change from just God hearing our petitions to us hearing God's call. The call of Samuel, as was the call to others before and since, always calls for a response. No call has ever been imposed on someone by God. God always waits for the answer, which, if yes, has always been something like the words that Eli gave to Samuel to say to God, to let God know, yes, was his answer. God, I am your servant. I am ready to listen. Ready to say yes. Preparation is important. But being ready to say yes to God is more important, I think. For many of us, the readiness to say yes comes after a time of resistance The yes can be the answer to anything that at its core comes closest to who we are in our relationship to God at the point that those two things have the clarity and oneness that only such an exchange with God can have. The oneness frequently occurs at a low point of despair or a high point of anxiety. I have known both of these. By the 1980s, And in my early 30s, I was relatively successful in business. The joke was that when we fell down, we used to fall up. It was growing so quickly. I had a wide and open future ahead of me in a smart and rapidly growing company. The trappings were all there, the cash and the prizes, the travel and the rewards, as we sometimes say. But the terrible conflict of being gay and being closeted The dulling of the pain with years of drinking had finally brought me to my knees. God had pretty much abandoned me in the sense that the God I knew then was truly a punishing God. A God who wanted me to be other than gay, which is what everybody told me. And I had no way to change that ever worked. The drinking, that was a way to an escape an out-of-hand way to an escape. 
It was a form of self-medication to quell the pain. And if there was a hell, truth was, I was resigned to it. It was a horrible existence. In fact, it was hell. And then one day when I had gotten bad enough, I turned to God, to that same God or some God, I don't know, and I asked for help, real help. I remember the words, they were simple, and I never said them with more of my heart. Please help me. They were spoken only between God and me. I was ready to ask, I was ready to listen, and I was ready to act. And over time, the answer came with others who had learned how to live a life free of the bondage of self and booze. And a relationship was formed between God and me that has always been there, but had long been forgotten. I was willing to give up everything to get back right with God, right with myself, right with others. I had found the God I always knew, not the God that others had tried to impose on me. For all these years since then, whatever prayers I have, I have always included the simple prayers of, Thy will, not mine, be done. And thank you, somewhere in those prayers. And I can still get all caught up in the anxiety of what's going on, trying to change things. And often that self-driven ego can get me back to a point where I just need to say, okay, okay, I give up. Show me what you want me to do. And then give me the courage to do it. And these tasks, these responses to God's call can be grand in the simplest of ways. Stopping to help someone with packages. I've trained myself to say, can I help you? Especially to strangers in need. It can be in making sure that the heating system is working so we stay warm. It can be in any situation, at any time, in any job, in any relationship. God, your will, not mine, be done. And before long, sometimes before very long, the God that appears is the God that is well above and beyond anything that I want or is anxiety producing. It is the God before whom only I can stand with myself. It is the God who directly says to me, will you help me? Awaiting my answer. The God who says, if I call you, will you? Will you go? And the best of answers, I think, is the yes before I know where the go-to is. I think Jesus was talking a bit about this this morning when he said to Nathaniel, you call me the son of God just because I saw you in a vision sitting under a fig tree? You haven't seen anything yet. This is more than about being a seer or a charlatan or even a prophet. This is about you and the power of God in you and the universe. Wait till you see what happens when that idea becomes clear to you and you start to practice living with that in your heart and in your mind. And Nathaniel followed. And Samuel followed. And we follow. All of us, at times, 
with the God that is there when everything else is gone, when the headlines are print on paper and the newscasts are electrons on a screen, before and beyond the heartache and the loss, God is there and calling each of us in ways only we will know in our hearts. On this day that is actually the anniversary of the 83rd birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is fitting that we think of his life, not just his words, which are amazing, but his life that was placed into the care of God's hands. Now, not all of us will have a national holiday in our honor. Not all of us will be executed by the mass hatred that fueled an assassin's searing bullets. Not all of us will be the leading figure in civil rights, religion, and peace that Martin Luther King was. But all of us will have the same impact with our lives according to God's plan. If we turn ourselves over to God with the same simple request or statement, thy will, not mine, be done. And then be ready, not to keep a scorecard, but to be used as God will use you and me, all of us. On the front of the bulletin, the piece I chose for today's reflection is from a speech Martin gave at Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 5th, 1967, almost five months to the day before he was killed. You see the title, So Precious That You Will Die For It. He talks about stepping up to God's call, even to the point of being willing to put your life at risk, not because your life means so little, but because your life means so much. There's another way I thought about that this morning. Maybe it was the words that Jesus knew from God the Father and God the Mother who instilled in Jesus the truth that God's Spirit and Jesus all knew. The people before you are so precious that you will die for them. Not because your life means so little, but because theirs means so much to us. That's a God well beyond any anxiety or doubt. That's the God I believe is in us here and now. So that the next time you have a moment of silence, try to remember such a truth. And maybe more than peace will emerge from what was once only a place of anxiety and doubt. Amen.